0: Book of Daniel, chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 13. This is Daniel speaking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I pray that You would come now. I pray that Your Spirit would help us to understand this. Um, help us to receive this with gladness. Um, I know that you have things that you want to accomplish with this word and you've promised that it will not return void but that it will come back to you having completed what it was supposed to and so I'm I'm calling you out on that promise and I pray that you would do that for us this morning God change our hearts change the way we look at you and think of you this morning in Jesus name I pray Amen. Amen you guys can have a seat so, the book of Daniel, for those of you who don't know, takes place during the exile of the, of the children of Israel into Babylon. Daniel was from the royal tribe of Judah. He was a very smart man, a very godly man. He was obedient and faithful to the Lord, even in the face of, of the lion's den, which many of you know the story of Daniel. When you think of Daniel, you think of Daniel and the lion's den. Most people know those stories. He prayed to the Lord, even after it was already decreed, it's illegal to pray to God. He kept on doing it, and he was thrown into the lines, and many of us know that story, but most people, what they don't know, or don't think of, or don't have a good handle on, is the last half of the book of Daniel, which is pretty much all apocalyptic prophecy, prophecy. He's speaking figuratively about the end times, about things that are going to happen before the Lord comes back and in between the time that he's, he's prophesying. And this idea, this study is called eschatology, the study of the last things. And so in Daniel, he's doing that kind of apocalyptic prophecy. Um, I would say equivalent to the book of Revelation. Everybody, you know, when they think of... The, the weird, crazy book of the Bible, they think of Revelation. Well, Daniel is the precursor to Revelation. You, you cannot understand Revelation until you get Daniel down. So Daniel is, is equivalent with the book of Revelation with this apocalyptic prophecy. Now in chapter 7, Daniel is seeing dreams and visions while he's sleeping. Now the first eight verses, which we didn't read, I'm just going to building some context here. The first eight verses describe four different beasts. And if you've read Revelation, you know there's a lot of mention of beasts and and creatures and stuff. There are four beasts and those four beasts represent four different world powers, political powers, kingdoms, or kings um, that would wreak havoc and have authority in the world somewhere, sometime between while Daniel's writing and the Lord comes back. Now, most people, if they're going to read the book of Daniel, they will spend years and years and years and years learning verses 1-8 through and trying to figure out who are these world powers? Who are these kings? Who are these leaders? Was it Nero? Is it Barack Obama? Was it this guy? Was Was it Stalin? Was it Hitler? Who are these leaders? And they completely leave out the most important part of this chapter, which is where he goes after verse 8. He goes into verses 9 and 10, and he has this vision... Of the Ancient of Days, and that's none other than Yahweh Himself, God the Father, on His throne, reigning and ruling, judging the nations. And then in the verses that we read this morning, 13 and 14, Daniel has this vision of the second person of the Trinity. Now, He doesn't call Him Jesus because He hasn't been born yet. His name's not Jesus, He's not a person yet. It's just he, He's having a vision or a premonition, a dream about something that's going to take place in the future. Daniel doesn't know when. He's just speaking, and he sees this one like the Son of Man, Jesus, taking His throne in heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And So that's what I want to talk about today is the kingship of the Lord Jesus, Him as our King. Now, similar to the priesthood, which we talked about last week, and also... The prophets, which we'll talk about next week, it's hard for us to get our minds around the idea of a king. We've never lived under a king. America separated from a king in 1776. None of us have ever experienced living under a king. Even in uh, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, she, she has very little real power. She's a constitutional monarch. She's more just like a figurehead. When they, when they carry out laws and edicts, they do it in the name of the queen. She's like a, a head of state, but she doesn't have a whole lot of real power. There's still a, a parliament there. So it, understanding this concept of a king is hard for us. We can say Jesus is king, king of kings, but it's hard for us to really understand what that means. Um, our government works very differently than the idea of a king. And so it takes us a little bit to wrap our minds around this. Many of you have heard that our government is a democracy. Anybody ever heard that our government is a democracy? That's false. Our government is not a democracy, has never been a democracy. Um, We're slowly moving towards a democracy, which is a horrible thing. But from our constitution, our government is what's called a constitutional representative republic. Democracy means mob rule. That means 51% of the people can overthrow 49% whenever they want to, which would be horrible. That's that's not how our government works. And our government, and the way our constitution is drafted, is that we are governed by elected officials who represent the people, or they're supposed to represent the people. And those elected should unbiasedly take the concerns of the people and make those laws and rules and judgment, but in our day that doesn't really happen because you've got smaller groups of elite, really wealthy people or or the media who kind of sways the government and people like us who don't have a whole lot of money and can't really do a whole lot. We're just kind of left in the dark and we watch the news and that's where we get our political information, but really, who knows if it's really true, we're just believing what they tell us and so that's how our government is moving. We are becoming a democracy, but that's a bad thing and so... Our our government and the way it works is vastly different than a a monarchy with a king and and the way that the Bible paints the picture of a king. And and all that was just to to help us understand that just because we say king, we really would have a hard time understanding what it means to have a king. A king or a monarch has complete rule. He's the final authority. He makes the rules. There's no voting There's no opinion polls. He's the standard. What He says goes. That's a king. The king has all authority. Now, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, that's exactly what we have. God, the just and gracious creator of all things, has spoken everything into existence. He creates a man and a woman, and He he puts them in authority as vice regents over the earth, but He's still king. He calls all the shots. Everything is under submission or under His authority. He's the ruler. He's the authority over everything that exists. And it was good. We heard that over and over in Genesis 1. It's good. And it was good. And it was good. That's the way things were supposed to be. And then, of course, we know Adam and Eve fell into sin. Before they sinned, Everything was perfect. They had everything they could ever desire, everything they could ever want. They had dominion over the earth. They could subdue the earth, take care of it, hang out with animals, work in the garden. There was no sin, no shame. Everything was perfect. And God Himself was ruling the universe unopposed. God has never, nor will he ever be running for God. There's no election, there's no votes, it's just, it is. He's God and, and that's how it was in the beginning and then of course Eve is tempted by Satan and she gives in to the temptation to be like God. That's what the serpent tells her, you can be like God. She wants to think like God. She wants to see like God. She wants to have knowledge like God. She had everything she could ever want. Life was perfect and she just wants a little bit more. I just want to be the next step up is what she was thinking. So she, she didn't want to live under God's rule anymore. She didn't want to submit to His authority. She didn't want to be subject to His commands anymore. She wants to be ruler. She wants to be in charge. She wants to be God. And so she decides that her immediate desires... That the fruit was, it looked good for food, that it was desired to make one wise, she decides that's more important than submitting to God. And so she sins, she eats, and then her husband Adam eats with her. In that moment, mankind, all of mankind that there was, rebelled against God. So for the first time on earth, the throne of God is being challenged and opposed. And of course, they paid for it dearly as As long as, or as as well as we do. So, because of that sin, Adam and Eve, and all humanity, and all of creation, Scripture says was subjected to futility. It's all in bondage to sin and decay. It's crumbling. It's falling apart because of sin. Now, because of that first sin, where we get the doctrine of original sin, every human being born from those two people afterwards are born with a natural bent. Towards rebelling against authority. None of us are ever born with a natural desire to submit to authority and, and, and say, that's what you say, that's fine. None of us. If, if you've ever been around a two-year-old, you know human beings are not born with the desire to submit. I've never taught my son to rebel or disobey. He just does it. Because he doesn't want to submit. He wants to do his own thing. And so that's what we're all like that. We're by our very nature in opposition to God from from birth. We don't want to submit to God's authority. We don't want to obey God's rule. We don't want to obey God's commands. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says this. It spells it out clearly. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the mind apart from Christ, the way we're born, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now this is not talking about carnal Christians. That's nowhere in Scripture. This is lost people apart from Christ cannot submit to God. It says cannot please God. Cannot submit to God's law. It is beyond our ability as fallen creatures to submit to God. It would please Him to submit to Him. It would please Him to honor Him. It would please Him to worship Him. But we can't do it. Unable to please God from birth. We cannot. Naturally, we're unable to do anything except oppose God. It says hostile to God. It doesn't say we're we're neutral about God. You know, I don't really care about God. No, we're hostile. That means I'm on the offensive. We are opposed to God naturally. Elsewhere in scripture, it says we're enemies of God. It says we're children of wrath. All of that because Adam decided to rebel against the authority of the king, and we are all born rebels. We are all born that way. Now, that doesn't mean that God has lost some control. God never loses control. God's never... More king than he has ever been king. And he's never less king in a moment than he has ever been. He still rules over all things, but we are just in opposition to that rule. We don't like it, but that doesn't change the fact. God's reign, and this is important, God's reign is not contingent on whether or not you submit to Him. Some people say, I decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Evangelists will say, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. There's no such thing. Jesus is Lord of your life forever. Whether you submit to Him or not, He is Lord. You don't give that to Him. We don't say, okay, well, I'll allow you to be Lord. No, that doesn't happen. He is Lord. He is God. He reigns and nothing changes that. You don't accept Jesus as Savior like it's a friend request. Jesus is not saying, man, I just really wish they would just accept me. No, God saves people because He's Lord and He's King and He's boss and He does whatever He wants. And so there's, it's not contingent on whether or not we submit. God rules over Satan and his demons. Martin Luther, the reformer, said the devil is God's devil. Uh, and I, I really enjoy that. If you remember, Satan had to ask permission to afflict Job. Satan requested that he might sift Peter like wheat. The demons requested that they could be sent into a group of pigs. God is in control and has always been in control and nothing changes that. You can submit now or you can have your knees broken with a rod of iron in the future, but you will bow down because He is in control and nothing changes that. So throughout the Old Testament and even as we've studied quickly... We've seen that God rules through different means on earth. He rules through plagues. He rules through His law. He rules through the prophets as they enforce the law. We'll see that next week. He rules through judges in the book of Judges. And He also rules through kings and different nations. Even opposing nations that He would later punish for their actions. He rules through them and and, and leads them to do things and then punishes them for it later. Read it. So, I just mentioned Judges. In the book of Judges, God rules through men called Judges. The most popular of the Judges, everybody knows the story of Samson. And most of you know that story. So, so God rules through the Judges. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're told that Samuel had made his sons Judges. And they weren't very good judges. And so the people get tired of having judges. And they go to Samuel and they request a king. And I'll read this to you from 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, you see, even in their request, you see some problems. First of all, they say, we want a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, when we think of a king, especially scripturally, as kings, we don't think of it as a bad thing. But they, the reason they got a king was because they were rebellious. They wanted a king like the the other nations. That's problem number number one. They didn't want to be God's people. They didn't want to be set apart. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be under God's rule. They wanted to be like everybody else. And when we've studied the Old Testament, the whole point of every bit of the law and the commandments and the ceremonies and all that stuff was to set them apart. And they were saying, We don't want to be set apart. We want to be like the other nations. That's problem number one. And then problem number two, God says to Samuel, They haven't rejected you. They're rejecting me as their king. See, the judges were ruling under the authority of God, but God was still king. He was the one who was appointing the judges. And so in asking for a king, they're not just rejecting the judges, they're rejecting God. And so they're rejecting God's authority. They don't want God as their king. They want a man as their king. They want a man as their ruler. And that is expressly the same sin that took place in the Garden of Eden. God's people have rejected God as king. They say, we don't want God and His authority. We want the authority that comes from man. We want a human authority. That's self-worship. That's idolatry. Same problem. It's never changed. We still do it all the time. That is the problem. We worship ourselves. And so God tells Samuel, just give them what they want, but warn them what it's going to be like. Just remind them, you want a king, you will have a king, but... Here's what a king is going to look like. And he goes on in in 1 Samuel and says this. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers So we see there, what he's doing is he's, Samuel is describing what a monarchical reign looks like. You want a king, you can have a king, but he's going to have all authority over whoever, whenever, wherever. He's going to do whatever he wants with whoever, whenever, wherever. Your children are going to be taken and made slaves. He's going to take your food. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your land. Because He is King and kings do whatever they want. There's no authority except the king. And so He's just describing that for them. They've never had this before. And so He's saying, you want a king like the other nations? Well, let's just go ahead and get this straightened out. This is how the other nations live. And that's what you're asking for. And they... They still want a king. And so that begins the time of the kings, beginning with King Saul. Now, Saul was not like a king fully, like we would think of a king. Saul was more just like a really strong military leader. Much of what you read about Saul is just military conquest. He went in and beat this nation, he went in and beat this city, this city, this city. It's military conquest. Saul didn't try to establish a central government. And a parliament or or different branches of government. He didn't do any of that stuff. He didn't have a palace like we would imagine a palace. Saul was a military leader. Most most, um, people would agree, theologians agree, that Saul's palace was more like a fortress. Because he was just a military man. So as Saul takes his throne, Israel has its first real commanding officer as a military leader. Since they've been in the land of Canaan. So they're moving towards a true kingship. But they're not quite there yet. They have military conquest. They have dominion. But it's not fully a kingship like they want. Or like we would even imagine it. Then comes David. David was a great king. We read about David. He was a, a, a wonderful king. A man after God's own heart. He was from the tribe of Judah. So that means he was from the royal line. The royal tribe, he was He was a great military man also. You can read in there, they would say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David was a mighty military warrior. He conquered more men than Saul, but in addition to his military skill, he also moved the capital into Jerusalem and unified God's people around a central government. And so now... They have military conquest, but they also have a proper government governing a a, a unified people. They have a kingdom. So now they have dominion, and they have a kingdom. But it's not quite a proper kingship. They're moving that way, but they're not there yet. After David, Solomon, David's son, becomes king. Now with the rule of Solomon, we see even more of what a kingship should look like. Solomon was David's son, so it's it's a hereditary kingship line like it's supposed to be. It was passed down, so that royal line is working like it's supposed to. As most of you know, when Solomon becomes king, he brings much glory and majesty and grandeur and prestige to the throne. He built an extravagant palace for himself, an extravagant temple. For the Lord. He was wise beyond anyone who had ever lived. He was wealthier than anybody could conceive. So, with Solomon, God's people were finally beginning to see a true monarchal reign, a true kingship. They had military conquest, dominion. They had an actual government, a kingdom. They had a second generation king who was wise and majestic, glory. Those three things make up. A good, solid kingship. There's only one problem. These men were men. They were imperfect. They were fallen. They were sinful. They acted exactly like Samuel had told the people they would act. Saul was rejected as king because he offered a sacrifice in the temple, which was the priest's job. Remember, king can't be priest. Priest can't be king. Saul decided to go in and make a sacrifice in the in the temple because he got tired of waiting on Samuel. And so he was rejected as king. David had an affair with a woman, had her husband murdered. Samuel, or Solomon, turned from the Lord and worshipped sex with foreign women. So no matter how great these men were, and no matter how much good they did, their, their evil, their sin, their wickedness, was still more than their successes. They failed more than they succeeded from... From that point, the kingdom was once again divided. And then there were many kings. 39 to be exact, before they went into exile. 39 kings. 8 of which were actually considered good kings. So 8 of 39. God's people had rejected God as king. They had followed after human beings. And that got them into trouble. Eventually captivity. And that brings us to Daniel's prophecy during the exile. So that's how we get to where we're reading from today. So verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7 again. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. This son of man, like I've already... Alluded to was none other than the eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the the, the phrase Son of Man points us to his humanity. He was the son, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman promised from Genesis chapter 3, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. The Son of Man is God in human form. Isaiah 14 says, Behold, the woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in His humility as a human being. And it says He was like a son of man. He wasn't exactly a son of man. He wasn't just like a human. He had some similarities. But he wasn't a regular human. He was like a son of man. Philippians 2.8 says he was found in human form. Human likeness. He was made to be like one of us. But he was still different. He was fully human being. But he was also fully God. That's who Daniel is seeing. One like a son of man. And it says he came with the clouds of heaven. This is a reference to His exaltation after His resurrection. He was like a son of man, a human being, but declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Forty days after His resurrection, He ascended bodily into the clouds. A cloud took Him away. Jesus, with the Father, right now has a human flesh body. It's a glorified body, but He's a human being. And just as a side note, if He ascended bodily into the clouds, then we can also expect that He will return in the same way. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ that He's talking about. And it says, He came to the Ancient of Days. Once again, this is a reference to His ascension into the heavens, into the presence of God. No human being was ever allowed into the true presence of God. After His death, His burial, His resurrection, Jesus ascended into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We've talked a lot about that with the ceremonial law and the the tabernacle. Jesus is in the presence of the Father. Now, as, as background to that, in John 17, 5, Jesus prayed this to His Father. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before the world began, the eternal Word of God existed forever in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity, in, in eternal communion there with the Trinity, and then Galatians four four says, "...in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law." So the Son, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has eternally existed in full glory, in the presence of God the Father and the Spirit, and then in the fullness of time, which means at just the right time, when everything was perfect and everything was exactly right... God sent His Son into the world to be born of a woman like a son of man. So, after Jesus had lived and then died and then resurrected and ascended, He's now come before the Ancient of Days right back to where He was before. The work is finished. All that the Father had laid out for Him to complete was done. His people were redeemed. The sins were atoned for. Death defeated. Hell conquered. And He goes right back to where He was before. He had a place, He came to do a job, He did it, and He goes back into the presence of the Father, the Ancient of Days. So He's come and He is presented before the Ancient of Days. That phrasing means He was brought near. He came on in to the presence of the Father. He went into that place where only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could go. He was presented like a prize, like a reward, like some human would be presented the key to a city or a a war veteran would be presented with a medal of honor. It's as if this eternal Word of God came back into the presence of the Father in His glorified, risen human body in which He had accomplished the most significant act of mercy and grace the universe will never know to say, Here I am, Father. I'm back. I've done what you sent me to do. The work is complete. Your people are redeemed. My bride has been bought. It's all over. The victory's won. So here I am. I'm done. The work is done. He's presented before the Ancient of Days. And then in verse fourteen is where we begin to we we get that glimpse of the kingship of the Lord. He's presented before the Ancient of Days, and he stands to receive the throne. Above all thrones. Verse 14 says, And to Him, and to that one like the Son of Man, to the Lord Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It says He was given Dominion, God the Father, the eternal ruler, sovereign over all that is and ever will be, bestows on His Son dominion. He was given dominion, given governmental rule. The Lord Jesus governs the universe. The Lord reigns. Like the psalmist says over and over, the Lord reigns. He's been given all supremacy. He's been given all authority. He's been given all power. Saul may have been a good fighter. He may have conquered many kings and kingdoms, but he sure was afraid of Goliath. Saul had some great victories, but he he didn't beat those Philistines the last time. He, He couldn't overcome those archers. He didn't overcome the sword of his servant as he commanded him to thrust him through because he would rather die than lose that victory and live. He didn't have all the dominion. He did a lot, but he didn't have all of it. In Matthew 28 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all His. Jesus reigns now. Jesus is King now. If you remember earlier in Matthew, John the Baptist and Jesus were both preaching repentance in light of the coming kingdom. And we learned that the kingdom of heaven came as Jesus comes into the world but will be consummated later when He comes back. So we're, we're in that already but not yet stage of history. The kingdom of God is here, it's present, it came with Jesus, but it will not be consummated until His second coming. He reigns now. He has dominion now. Nothing in this universe can stop the gospel from going forth and accomplishing what God has ordained for it to accomplish from the foundation of the world. Nothing can stop it. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. Jesus is King. Jesus has all authority. Satan may have blinded the minds of the unbelievers. But when God chooses to awaken a dead heart and open blind eyes, there's nothing Satan can do about it. Because God rules, the Lord reigns. It says about this dominion that's in an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. This dominion will not pass away. It will exist forever. Nothing will ever come to overthrow this kingdom. No opposing kingdom will ever threaten it. Jesus rules and reigns now. He has always reigned and He will reign forevermore, and nothing will ever change that. So He's been given dominion. And to Him was also given glory. He has honor, He has prestige, He has fame. His request was granted and he has been given that full glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Solomon brought much glory and prestige to the throne of Israel. He built a lavish palace, a majestic temple, pools of water, and forests of trees. Okay, we plant gardens. Solomon plants forests. He digs pools, ponds of water which can still be seen to this day to water the forests that he planted. When the queen of Sheba heard that about Solomon and his glory, she had to see it for herself. And so she came and it says that when she saw his servants and his food and his clothing and his kingdom and his wisdom and his wealth, that there was no more breath left in her. She couldn't breathe at the glory and the grandeur of Solomon. And then Jesus comes along and points at a flower that He spoke into existence and was holding together by the word of His power. And He says, Solomon in all His glory was not arrayed like one of those flowers. And then Jesus hints at that again in Matthew 12 when He says, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus has been given unmatched glory. Glory that we can't fathom. This is one of those things that if our bodies were in the presence of the glory of Jesus now, we would explode, we would evaporate. We cannot exist in the presence of that glory. That's why we have to get new ones so that we can be in His presence forever. Because our bodies can't stand His glory. Says unto him was given a kingdom. Jesus has been granted a sphere of authority that stretches over the universe. The angel, when prophesying his birth to Mary, said his kingdom would have no end. There's no stopping it. There will never be another another inauguration. Never another vote. Never never another election. David may have unified the people of Israel for a time, but they did split again, and off they went into exile. He was a good king, but his kingdom ended. When God promised David that there would be someone to sit on his throne forever, he wasn't talking about Solomon. Solomon died. The kingdom belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has no end. It says that kingdom will not be destroyed. Once again, he's reiterating that this kingdom has no opposition. No army can destroy this kingdom. See, a lot of people have this mindset that you've got God and you've got Satan and they're battling for the kingdom. That's not true. You've got God and then you've got Satan who's just an angel. He's just a fallen angel. They're not battling for the crown. He's under the authority of the throne of Christ. Even the demons call Jesus the Holy One of Israel which is used multiple times in the Old Testament as a reference to Yahweh. The kingdom will not be destroyed. It will not be challenged. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot be sieged. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. And look at the implication of this dominion and this glory and this kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. It says that. That all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion and His glory and His kingdom are such that people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth will serve Him. This is not a limited rule. This is not confined to local borders or national borders. It's not confined to languages or skin colors or ethnicity or cultures or flags. He rules with a, a, a kingdom and a dominion that has no end. It cannot be stopped. It's unlimited. So here's the question. I'll close with this. If God has redeemed a people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth, which we believe based on passages in the book of Revelation, based on this, we believe that, then how will those people come to know the Lord? How will they know about the Lord and the reign of Jesus if they don't know who He is. How, how, can, how can people from every tribe, and nation, tongue on earth serve Him who they don't know? How can they trust in one that they don't know? How can they obey one that they don't know? How can they submit to an authority that they've never heard of? How will they ever know unless somebody tells them? And how will somebody tell them unless they are sent? The Apostle Paul asked these same questions in Romans 10. And then his answer is, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's us. That's where we come in. Because it says it's going to happen. And this is where we come in. I've already quoted from the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That's the Great Commission. In Acts 1, there's a parallel account of the same commission... In the same event, in Acts one eight, Jesus says, He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. Not, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it would be great if you could be a witness. It doesn't say that. When you receive Or when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, you will be my witnesses. So what is a witness? A witness is a person who merely gives testimony to what they know to be true. So as disciples of Jesus and witnesses of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you have received power then you are to give testimony to what you know to be true. What do we know? Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has a kingdom and a dominion that will not pass away or ever be defeated. Jesus reigns. As witnesses of Jesus, this is the message that we take to the world. Jesus reigns. Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns. Jesus has all authority. Repent and submit to Him while there's still time. That's our message. Repent. Jesus said, preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name until I return. So we are witnesses of the kingship of Christ. The gathering of believers, that is the church. That's us. The church is a living, breathing, walking, talking, active presentation to the world... Of the rule and the reign of King Jesus. In the hearts of His people. That's what this is. That's why this time together is so important. That's why our love for one another is so important. That's why churches sending out people. To preach the gospel. And plant churches. Is so important. Because this is how the kingdom of God is made manifest in the earth now. Through the preaching of the repentance and the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name until He returns. That's how the kingdom grows. It's not through digging wells. It's not through handing out bottles of water. It's not through giving shoeboxes. That's not how the kingdom grows. The kingdom grows when you say, look, Jesus is Lord and you should repent. Turn from your sin. Worship Him. That's the kingdom of heaven on earth. I'm not saying you can't do good things. We absolutely should. But that's not growth of the kingdom. That's extra So in His life, Jesus secured the righteousness that we would need, that we do need to go into the presence of God. In His death, Jesus atoned for our sin and settled the debt that we owed to the Lord. And in His resurrection, Jesus arose victorious over death and hell and the grave. Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And that is not contingent on whether or not in this moment you choose to submit. It doesn't matter. He's still Lord. And someday we will all bow down. We will bow the knee and we will worship Him. And we will confess that He is Lord. My Encouragement is that you would do that now, here on earth, rather than being made to do it later by submitting to the kingship of Jesus, repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, and worshiping Jesus as King. Let's pray.